Well, it's good to be back at church, but also behind the pulpit. Uh, we missed you last weekend. Um, we were away in Durban, uh, and I've been transformed into a new man since then. I'm now closer to 100 than I am zero uh, in terms of age. So uh, we didn't go there to celebrate my birthday. We were actually there for a wedding of a good friend in the ministry, and uh, his daughter was married, so we were glad to be invited to that. But I happened to have my birthday while we were there. So we normally don't have a big extravagant dad birthdays, but that just happened to line up nicely. But in that week we were away, it felt like three weeks, so I feel like I need to introduce myself again and <laughs> get you know you. The time does uh, drag that way, but that's a good sign. All right, Uh, this morning, if you could uh, turn your Bibles with me, we're going to be looking at uh, 2 Timothy and uh, uh, chapters 1 and then verses 8 to 14. Now, in my my last sermon, the last time I preached, it was during one of our evangelism months, of which we usually have a couple with evangelism events in between, of course. Um, But I preached on various texts on the believer's role in that gospel mandate, you know, how we are used by God despite ourselves, you know, as we looked at this morning, some have gifting in that area, some struggle, but we are all commissioned to do it. And um, we're reminded in that sermon that the gospel is the only means by which God uses to draw people to himself. We are vessels for that. We, you know, one of the texts that I spent time on was Romans 1, verses 16 to 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For it is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Now here, Paul explains that he's not ashamed of the gospel, and he We'll look at this morning why that is and how he encourages Timothy in that. But he tells us that he's not ashamed for a reason. And that reason is simply that he has faith in the truth of the gospel. It's not a fickle faith. It's not a fleeting faith. It's not a man-made religion. It's the very word of God that he's preaching. And he knows that it's the power of God to save. And Paul wasn't ashamed of the gospel because it saves not just him, but those who hear and who God draws to himself. And as I thought a bit about that text and, and really thinking more about shame in general as the days grow darker in the times we're living, um, and even the illustration that I brought up of Peter and how quickly he ab- abandoned Christ, was ashamed of Christ, minutes after telling Christ that he would never deny knowing him, and then moments later, what did he do? Right? He wept. But later, we read from his sermon at Pentecost in Acts 2 how much he's changed. We know he was repented and he devoted himself faithfully also in proclaiming the gospel to all that would hear. So he wasn't afraid any longer. There was a change from fear and shame to power and courage. Now, to be sure, his initial denial of Christ after witnessing Christ's crucifixion, he was very likely aware of the danger of proclaiming the gospel, right? There's a real risk here, his own death. But after the weeping and after the repenting, 
he was encouraged by the word of God, and he was no longer ashamed and was a faithful proclaimer of it. So this morning, we're going to look more closely what it means to be faithful proclaimers and guardians as well of the gospel. Proclaimers and guardians. Now, if you believe in Christ, you should have that primary desire to make him known, to be fervent in being salt and light to a perishing world. So to be a believer means that you are a disciple. It means to be one who lives for Christ, who honors the Lord in our lives. But it also means then to be doing the will of the Lord. And one of the wills of the Lord is that we are commissioned to proclaim the good news. So if you're a follower, you are called to be a witness of Him. And this morning we're going to look at that truth. So if you are in 2 Timothy um, first chapter, we'll look at verses 8 to 14. Let me just read from that. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day which has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Let's pray and then we'll dive in. Our Father and God, indeed, we are guardians. We are the clarion call, not of our own message, but of yours, of your word, of your true gospel. And Lord, there are times where we are tempted to soften the blunt and sharp, piercing edges of your word that does, in fact, cut to the bone and to the very spirit of uh, those who hear it. And Lord, these are days where the culture opposes truth and the truth of your word. So we pray that this morning we would draw encouragement and comfort from your word, from Paul's letter to young Timothy, a man who himself was fearful and living in a time of much confusion and understanding of the gospel. So uh, we are living in those times as well, and we can appreciate and, and learn from this. We pray that we would be careful listeners, that we would apply what we are learning and hearing, and Lord, that you would continue to renew our hearts and minds, that you would be glorified, and that we would be edified through your word. We pray this in your name. Amen. Now, just prior to what I just read, um, Peter... Um, sorry, Paul is writing to Timothy, and he, and he says this in verses 6 and 7, which I want to read first, just to set up that passage. He says this, For this reason, Timothy, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Now we know Paul is writing this to young maybe even immature Timothy, 
not to the believers in general in the church. This is addressed to Timothy, right? He's writing to him specifically to encourage him and to implore him even. But the application here is for all believers as well. We can, we can glean from this to everyone who is commissioned to proclaim the name of Christ. You see, one of Timothy's problems was, was that he has a bit of a coward in these situations. Or maybe he felt overwhelmed by the challenges and the problems in the churches that he was left with. And we also know that Paul reminded him that he was neglecting the gift of teaching of God that he had been given earlier in 1 Timothy, right? And as such, Timothy needed to put aside these fears and then what does Paul say? To fan those flames of his devotion to the Word. So he's losing his zeal. This is the picture we're getting. Zeal for the ministry of the Word. And ultimately, what does that mean? Uh, For the work of the Lord that was given to him. So Paul is saying, don't be timid. Don't trust in your own strength. Lean on God's Word. In verse 7 where Paul says, God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Here he is speaking about that supernatural gifting that God gives us by His Holy Spirit. Uh, which is, a believer, Timothy would, as all believers would, have that at salvation. That is not something you muster up. Uh, we are given the Holy Spirit at salvation. Now how we are... As we looked at gifting earlier this morning, there is different measures of gifting along with that, but we share in that same spirit. That means we can draw from that same courage. And what this phrase means is the Holy Spirit that God gives each believer knows nothing of fear. Not fear of discomfort, not fear of hostility that you will encounter when proclaiming God's word, not fear of man. It means that God's spirit is one of truth and love and courage. That's the antithesis of the world, right? And that is because God's Holy Spirit is holy. And nothing can thwart God's perfect holiness. And all believers have God's spirit of power, love, and, and also of sound mind, which is what that self-control means. It doesn't mean you are disciplining your body only, but also in your mind. You are thinking clearly. And that's given to us at salvation. We develop that through sanctification, but at salvation that is given to us. So, we're contrasting here the world. We are no longer guided by the spirit of this world or captured by the feelings or circumstances that we formerly were. We are are now no longer that man. We are filled by God's spirit that governs us to walk according to his will and according to his word. And that means we are to be a testimony to the world. And how do we do that? By speaking the truth in love and to be salt and light to those who are who despise the Word of God. And this means that all the love that we have for God's Word, all the love that we have for other believers, and all the love that we, can, we have for the lost, comes from God's Spirit. That's not something that we muster up either. That concern for one another, that love for one another, that's our, that's our testimony to the world that we are of God, right? That's that shows the world that we are His. And it doesn't come to us, this love doesn't come to us because we are now part of a good church, um, or because we are now good people, we do good things, uh, or because we study Reformed theology. Uh, None of those things makes us love, develops love that is given as a gift. The desire to love again is from God alone. 
of His indwelling Spirit. And that is how we overcome fear and live according to His truth. And through this, you're able to love the way God loves because now you are given that giftedness from Him, right? Maybe in small measure, and it will come to fulfillment, uh, but we um, are living to glorify Him because of that. So it controls our desires. It's, uh, it, we should experience peace and courage to such a degree that that fear of the temporal suffering diminishes. And this is Paul's encouragement to Timothy. He needed that encouragement, and I think we need that as well. Um, yeah, because we're no longer controlled by the fear of the world. It should give us boldness. And Paul explains that we are compelled with power and love and, and discipline in verse 7. And this is a gift of the Holy Spirit that we often neglect, which leads us, then if we neglect that, leads to a much bigger problem, which is the next part of this passage, and that is Paul's warning to Timothy that if you neglect that, the courage that comes from God's Spirit, then you will be ashamed. You will have shame in the Gospel. And that's going to be our focus for this morning. Paul's warning to Timothy is indeed a message for all times, for all generations, but I think in particular this one. Uh, we are living in times where believers have unprecedented um, challenges and unprecedented um, opposing views in the world. The world is at a time living in a time like no other. And um, we need to be ready for that, to not compromise or soften the gospel. Now, Paul's warning to Timothy should be a familiar one. Uh, we see it often in Scripture. Um, in Mark 8.38, uh, Christ warns his disciples, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And of course, Paul said that earlier in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the work of salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and then also to the Greek. And this is the admonition Paul is giving to Timothy in verse 8. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. What does that mean? That means the gospel. Nor of me, his prisoner. So Paul is aligning himself as a faithful preacher of this very word that he has passed on to Timothy. He's saying to Timothy and to all believers by virtue of the application, when you go out in this godless, anti-Christian world, do not be afraid for the light of Christ to shine through you and for your words to be the words of God. Don't shirk from the truth of the gospel. Now in verses 8 to 14, which we'll... Um, which we'll read again, maybe, um, well, actually, I think we've read it once is enough. I'll just unpack it, but if your Bible's open to verses 8 to 14, we're going to look at four, we're going to just pull out four, there are more, but just four imperatives uh, or commands in this section. And uh, the first one in verse 8 is a negative command. It's a do not. Therefore, in verse 8, do not be ashamed. Also in verse 8, there's a second command Paul makes to Timothy, and he says this. He says, share in the suffering for the gospel. Now the NSAB, I, I prefer its translation more, but it does use a word that's not in the original text, but it helps us understand it better. It says, 
but join with me in suffering for the gospel. Now, the me isn't in the Greek, but it's implied that Paul is inviting Timothy to suffer along with him in the same way that he is suffering, to be willing to suffer as Paul is suffering, which Timothy would be well aware of, of Paul's suffering, which we will get into later. The third command in verse 13 is, follow the pattern of sound words, which means to retain this understanding of sound teaching that Paul has, again, passed on to him. He had taught Timothy. Timothy knows the truth of the gospel. And he's saying, follow those teachings. The fourth imperative is in verse 14. To guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Again, the NSAB in this verse translates good deposit as treasure. Guard the treasure. And I I do prefer that wording, but it is meaning the same thing. So the four imperatives, don't be ashamed. Share in the suffering of the gospel. Follow the pattern of sound teaching and guard the treasure. How? How do you guard? He's clear about that. He says, by the strength of the Holy Spirit. Now, just for a bit of background, uh, you may know if you're familiar with First and Second Timothy, those two letters, and what happens in between and before. Um, Paul had left Timothy in Ephesus, right? In the first book, we know that. And uh, he, he's writing to Timothy to help these churches with some pretty big problems. Um, Teachers in the church didn't understand the purpose of the law. They're misapplying it. They're introducing uh, all kinds of genealogies and traditions into the church, um, which gave and elevated their own status within the church, depending on their genealogies uh, or merit-based works. So they were essentially adding and detracting from the gospel. So Paul Ask Timothy to stay in Ephesus and just, can you sort this out? <laughs> Help teach the churches and correct these errors. Um, but by Paul's second letter to Timothy, we can see it wasn't easy for him, right? He needs to really encourage him. He's feeling overwhelmed. He's feeling unable to do the task and he wanted to quit. Now, as we looked at this morning uh, in, in Shantan's discipleship, there, there is a pastoral gifting and there is suffering that comes along with that because in a church body you do have problem people <laughs> or problem issues and that can bring upon it, you as a, as a shepherd more suffering sometimes than physical because with a beating and a whipping and a shipwrecking <laughs> or an imprisonment you can say, oh, at least I'm alone. <laughs> at least I can't deal with that particular issue. Whereas the other one can be ongoing and it can be ever-present or even nagging. And so there, there are different kinds of suffering. And I think Timothy wasn't enduring the kinds of, uh, um, or to the measure, the kinds of suffering that, that uh, Paul was dealing with. But he was certainly dealing with uh, people, challenges and false doctrine. But Paul here, in contrast, had been enduring great physical sufferings with the, of course, public ridicule, but imprisonment and beating. And, and remember, this, at this time in Rome, uh, Nero, who was the emperor, um, yeah, emperor, what is it again? Yeah, uh, was basically publicly feeding Christians in the Colosseum to lions. It was a, it was a public spectacle. 
You would almost be expected that that would be your fate if you happened to live in Rome at that time. And he was lighting their bodies on, on lampstands lamp to light the, the streets at night. And uh, Paul's writing this letter at a time also where he knows his fate is similar. He knows his end is near. Uh, he will soon be beheaded. Yet, listen to Paul's words to Timothy. Through all of this suffering, in 2 Timothy 1-3, to so verse 3, just above where you are, he says this, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience. And I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. Now what a pastoral thing to say, right? What a caring, almost fatherly thing to say to Timothy. And that's how he views him. He has a genuine concern for Timothy's trials that are maybe different, um, but much for Timothy to bear compared to what Paul is used to bearing. He's helping him to see how to endure that suffering himself. And not to say that Timothy isn't suffering um, in a physical way as well, but Paul was a recipient, how do I say, maybe in a, a special dispensation or special measure of suffering that I don't think any of us could have endured, right? Um, he had endured whippings, uh, beatings with rods, stonings, shipwrecks, a, a, a drift at the sea, robbed, not at the same time, I don't think, uh, <laughs> and later imprisoned. So Paul knows hardship, right, when it comes to serving the Lord. And that did not cause him to waver. What does he say? I thank God whom I serve. You would expect that from somebody who's Ministry has gone well. Things are falling into place. You can see the fruits of your labor. Things are going well. But things are not going well for Paul at all. In the worldly sense, it's a disaster. But he's thanking God who he serves because he knows the God he serves. And even so, what Timothy is being asked to do, because remember, he's writing Timothy who is also suffering in his, in his church life, in, in the opposition that he has, the bickering, the... The, um, the infighting, the opposite, opposition that he's encountering all the time because of this prideful legalism that's crept into the church, these genealogies that people are pinning their status on and the false teaching. So he's enduring much spiritual abuse from people and from unbelievers. But Paul's saying, yeah, that's, that's pretty hard. But he's saying ministry is difficult, ministry is dangerous, but it's our calling He's saying, put the shame of the, of the gospel aside and join the battle to proclaim the truth of the gospel. And Paul also reminds Timothy what he's fighting for. Paul spends time re-explaining the gospel in a really brilliant way here. Uh, so Timothy can be reminded afresh of the urgency and the high priority and the high calling of being uh, commissioned and a proclaimer of God's word. Let's look quickly at them, and we'll go back to these four imperatives. But if you go to verses 9 and 10, you can see here Paul just simply walking Timothy through what are we doing? What is this all about? Let's start at verse 8. He says, But join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. And then in verses 9, here's where he outlines for Timothy the gospel. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us 
in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifest through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That's a great summary for Timothy to be reminded of what he is a recipient of. And he can profoundly relate to that, where he understood there's no hope in man, there's no hope inside of himself. He brought nothing. It's in Christ alone that salvation is, is given. And let's look at the gospel here, um, outline that Paul reminds Timothy. He says this, and to guard it, to retain it, but then also to regard it. In verse 8, it is God who saves us. He says, who saved us? He saved us with a holy calling, not of our works. He didn't save us because, Timothy, you're good, or God, God saw some extra measure of merit in you. God is the one who saves. And verse 9, how does he save? According to his own purposes. His unmerited grace is granted to you, granted to us in Christ Jesus. When? Because of what God saw? No, before the beginning of the world. From eternity past, God in His sovereign plan had already saved those who He elected to save. So it's impossible, therefore, if God outside of time has saved you, for then you to gain anything or to lose anything. That's the other side of the coin. Paul said in Ephesians 1.14 also, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. So Paul uh, is very clear in his doctrine and his teaching about being elected before the foundations of the world. That means that before time began, God had a plan to save sinners who could not save themselves. So our salvation is not some sort of reaction that God had come up with a plan. Uh, God's not observing that things are not going according to His plan and has to come up with another way, a new solution to save us. God knew who He would save outside of eternity. Before the very foundations of the universe were formed, God knew you and would save you. And that's what Paul means before the ages began. That's, he's speaking about election. That means God alone, through Christ alone, we are saved by His grace. And it means God will elect whom He will save. They will be saved. There's no um, way of thwarting who God will save. So here Paul is simply reminding and encouraging Timothy that they, they too were once those sinners who God had already saved outside of time. That God purposed to save from eternity past. That while they were enemies of God and children of wrath, God saw fit to save them. So what God purposed to do in salvation, He accomplishes. And in verse, this is verse 10. God not only purposed that the elect would be saved, He says here, but He has accomplished this through His Son, and which now has been manifest through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. God sent His Son to do this. God condescended Himself and took on human flesh to enter this world for this purpose. And in that, Christ perfectly obeyed and fulfilled the law. He resisted every temptation and was able to live perfectly righteous. Then faced death on your behalf, bore your sins and your judgment, bore the full wrath of God on the cross and died for you. 
and then conquered death. He killed death. So what God purposed in eternity past is and was realized in Christ for those who trust in Him. This is His reminder. That is the person of Christ. And God did it alone. Man is the recipient, not the participant. And Paul reminds Timothy of this. And he also reminds Timothy in verse 9 that God now has saved you, but He has commissioned you. He's commanded you. He's called you. That who saved us called us to a holy calling. So our calling is not to be saved without purpose. What began as a salvation leads to something, right? A response is required because of your salvation. And he is, Paul is saying here, those whom he saved he also called. That's the commission. Look here at verse 11. For which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, whom God saved, he called, whom he redeemed, he appointed. And Paul's stating here, I am here for the gospel. That's my calling. That's my purpose. And Paul could joyfully say that even though through his years of suffering uh, in ministry, this is his only purpose in life. This is all that he lives for. And that's a purpose that all believers can relate to and understand. That our purpose isn't just to make it through this life, but to live it with a gospel purpose and a resolve that no matter what challenges come your way, that we live and make Christ known. And in that way, God will be glorified. And this is why we need Paul's reminder to Timothy that God alone saves, God alone chose us, God alone redeems us, but He does so with a purpose. And that purpose is for the gospel. And Paul is also saying here that for you to know the source of your salvation and to be a beneficiary of that salvation, uh, to know the condemnation that you've been saved from, and then to be still and to be quiet, to not proclaim that good news to others, is the ultimate disobedience. This is a truth that Paul is basing this whole passage around. And I hope it's clear in the text here. This unmerited grace that's given to those that God has called um, requires a response. And if you're a child of God and called to Him in salvation, then this fits you as well. This is not just a letter for Timothy, although there is specific application for him. This is a reminder for all of us. Refusal and sharing the hope that is in you is like saying to your Lord, and the Lord of your salvation, I'm not that grateful. Um, yes, I've been rescued from eternal condemnation. You've given me grace upon grace, but I am living my own life. What you're saying is that your faith is about you, not Him. But let's get back to the outline, these four imperatives. In verse 8, the shame. Do not be ashamed. Share in the suffering. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, His prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And Paul, he repeats the same type phrase, the same meaning in verse 12 where he says, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. 
So specifically here, Paul is telling Timothy to put that shame aside and endure suffering for the sake of the gospel because Paul knows whom he has believed. He knows Christ. He's trusted Christ. He's trusted the finished work of his Lord alone. And he's not worried about those who can hurt the body, but only Christ who can save and save the soul. And he asks Timothy to have this kind of courage to not be ashamed. And I think we can relate to this. When we're thrown into the deep end of the world, uh, we're surrounded by the masses of uh, those who reject and I would say even despise the gospel that you hold dear. That thing that you treasure is that thing that they hate. And Paul here also understands Timothy's worry, not only to give up contending for the truth of the gospel, but also Paul is saying, don't disassociate from me, because that alignment with Paul in those days would have also brought special condemnation, right? Uh, Paul had the biggest target on his back that you could find. And Timothy might just be thinking maybe about survival, never mind correcting and uh, the, the destructive heretical teaching of the church. He might just be thinking, I've got to stay low. I want to stay below the radar. Now Paul's saying to him, no, do not be ashamed. Sometimes it's easier, though, to stay below the radar. You can live your comfortable, quiet, believer's life, blend in as best you can into the culture, to know, yeah, maybe I'm saved, I'm probably saved, but I just want to keep quiet and wait for the bus to pull up and take me to heaven. As long as I have that bus ticket, the rest can just carry on without me. I just want to go home. Is that your calling? Is that our calling as a church, as believers, to wait quietly uh, in the basement of our homes? I know you don't have basements here, but imagine them. Subterranean shelter. And wait to be swept away. And then, then, then worship and serve the Lord. No, that commission is now. You've heard the phrase often... I think it was yeah, St. Francis of Assisi. It's a horrible saying. Um, proclaim the gospel and use words as necessary. Have you heard that before? What's it really saying, though? It's, it's, he's saying, the, they'll figure it out. You're a good person and they'll see the gospel. They'll smell the gospel uh, by the, the aroma of your life or something silly like that. But it's kind of like saying, feed the world. Use food if necessary. There's, a, there's a, a tangible thing that must be given for you to digest. And that is with the Word of God as well. It has to be shared. It has to be given. You need to share. It needs to be proclaimed. It needs to be heard and heard so that it can save. So Paul is saying that an ineffective, quiet faith is a powerless faith. But he doesn't just command Timothy not to be ashamed. He adds to this burden. Don't be ashamed, he's saying. But there's more. Join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. So there's an element there where join me in suffering, but there's a way to do that. Paul is asking this at a time again where Christian property is being seized and believers are being beaten, imprisoned, thrown to lions, as I mentioned earlier. That's a really difficult time to be courageous and Paul, remember, he's writing this from prison. 
He's, he knows his fate. And you can imagine the number of believers, even Timothy himself, who were very tempted to keep a low profile. Because to be known as a believer would be to be condemned. Remember Peter? We mentioned earlier, he denied Christ moments after passionately confessing to love him. And some believe that when the threat of suffering comes, and it will be coming, and if it has come, it will come more, that it's your duty to stay low. Just let it pass. Survive. Get through. Blend in. But, or, or, or keep the peace is maybe a better way of, uh, of, of um, explaining how the world would do it. Because if you proclaim the gospel, you might lose your job, you might lose your status in the community, your pride, um, you're, you'll be ashamed. Paul says, stand up, don't be ashamed. More than that, endure that suffering. And not for the sake of suffering. This is what we want to clarify that. Don't look for suffering. <laughs> don't seek it out to be some sort of hero. Paul's not commanding believers to do that, to be intentionally confrontational to those around you so that you will bring upon suffering as some sort of badge of honor. Um, no, you're just being a bully. You know, speak the truth in love, but speak the truth. But what he is saying is to rejoice in that suffering when it comes. And because you're doing it for the cause of Christ, you're glorifying, glorifying God through your suffering because you are faithful to Him. In fact, the way Paul writes to Timothy, it's basically stating that if Timothy fails to join him in that suffering, what is he saying? Timothy, you're ashamed of the testimony of the Lord. And that implication is for us as well, that whether we put aside our fear and, and, and join in the suffering that is surely to come our way, if we don't do that, we're kind of saying we're ashamed as well. And you need to understand that fear of suffering is not an excuse or an exemption to proclaim the truth of the gospel. Now next, notice what he says in verse 8. By the power of God. This is actually um, connected to the statement that Paul had just said to Timothy early, earlier, verse 6, six to 7. For this reason, I remind you to fan the flames, sorry, fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Paul's reminding Timothy that our courage is not mustered up by our own wills, or that by our own strength we can be brave and overcome. Paul is saying that he is supernaturally gifted by God's Spirit, that's what it means to be in the strength of God, uh, for the task of overcoming the fear of the world, which you are not part of anymore. You are no longer of the world, but in the world. And the, the power of God is given by the Spirit that's shared by all believers. And the Spirit here, he's saying, is not a spirit of cowardice or timidity. Paul says the Holy Spirit is a spirit of power and of love and of self-control. And that's exactly what you need in, in issues and in, in, in the confrontation of the world. When you're confronted with fear, these are exactly the things you need that God has already given you, that you draw from. 
We need the love that drives us to speak in truth, right? We need the power of the Spirit where we want to flee, but we should rather fight. Fight the good fight. And we need self-control when we feel the need to take control of ourselves, to be pragmatic, to be uh, safe. <laughs> That's not walking by the Spirit. But So we have all we need here that Paul is saying. And that's what he means by according to the power of God. This is confirmed later in verse 14. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. The deposit entrusted to Timothy was the truth that he'd received from from, uh, Paul, right? Um, And now it had been passed along from Paul to Timothy, then from Timothy to other believers and other believers and so on, who in turn pass it on. But there's a guarding here that's being described, a guarding of the deposit or guarding of that treasure that's involved. Um, And that's not like locking it away in a hardened safe. That means to to, uh, teach with integrity, to teach clearly and accurately the truth that you have. And, And how can he do this? When the fear of death is everywhere, he wants to maybe soften the edges, right? Well, by God's Spirit, he does it. And Paul here is not contending for the truth on his own. He's relying on what God has already provided by His Spirit. And that's true of all of us. You have this treasure of God's truth that must be preserved and guarded and also passed on to others and faithfully passed on. So don't try to be courageous on your own strength. Don't just go to the gym for the sake of going to the gym. There's a purpose in being strengthened. There is a calling. There is a commission. Don't look for confrontations either to prove that you are of God. There will be enough trouble as it is if you are faithfully proclaiming God's Word. And I know in the days ahead it will get worse. Um, I've actually almost stopped looking at the headlines because I, I, I can't comprehend the madness. I already know where it's going, so I don't need to read every day how bad it's getting. I already I know enough. So don't be ashamed, join in the suffering, and do this with God's power when you do it. And then Paul expounds on the gospel to reground Timothy here in, in the fundamentals of what he knows Timothy knows, but we need these reminders, right? He says to him, remember, God saved you, God called you, God chose you before the foundations of the world, God sent His Son to be in your place, to bear your punishment, and then conquered death. And brought us into eternal life. So you cannot let suffering cause you to be silent when you have a truth like that. He's telling Timothy, don't be ashamed of the gospel or of me, who you are aligned. But rather, trust in the one who saved you. And now, Paul um, doesn't just command it. He's saying, look at me. I live it. Look at this example which he he gives in verse 12. This is Paul's example. Which is why I suffer as I do. He suffers as he does because he knows his Savior. He understands how he had nothing to do with his salvation. And he says, that's why I'm not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed. And I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Paul knows that he can endure suffering because of Christ. Because he knows of whom he has believed. Paul is willing to endure more, more than most 
because of a faith that he had more than most. And he was willing to do what he was asking Timothy to do, and even more. So he could easily encourage, because he could say, please do it and watch me. Watch me endure. Even from a prison cell. Remember, he's writing this. Not from a prison cell that we imagine today. <laughs> with a TV in the background, maybe a kettle there, a toilet with maybe doesn't have a seat on it. Uh, all of those basic, com- there's nothing. Chains and dirt and cold. He faced arrest and imprisonment. He had faced abandonment by his colleagues in ministry, which we'll, we'll look at now. And, he, and now he knows he's facing death. But despite all that, he says, don't be ashamed. Don't feel sorry for yourself. I don't feel sorry for me at all. He's not warning other believers either to flee from persecution. No, he's telling Timothy to stand firm. He explains that even though he is alone, and Paul knows he will likely die alone, he's not afraid because he knows whom he has believed. He believed that even though everyone would abandon him at his time of trial, Christ would never. He knew that he was already secured his salvation in Christ alone, and he could not add anything to that, nor could anyone take from that. And because of this, Paul had no problem confessing his Savior before men, in prison or not. He counted it all joy to suffer for that sake of the gospel. And there is a warning, though. There's a warning in this, then. That is, if you... (laughs) You will never suffer for a gospel that you don't really believe. You'll never suffer for a gospel you don't believe. You may understand the gospel. It makes sense to you, perhaps. You may enjoy the teaching intellectually. You love how the pieces fit together and the history and the martyrs that you read of. You may even say to yourself, I would die for the gospel as I would die for my wife. But you're pretty sure that day will never come. It's easy to say. It's easy to say I'll die for my wife when there's a one in a million chance you'll have to do that. But do you die every day? Do you, do you get up and make a coffee, die to make coffee? And Do you die by washing the dishes? <laughs> do you die by... Caring for her needs. This is an ongoing thing. But if you don't really believe in it, you won't really suffer for it. And you will not endure any kind of loss for it. You will not suffer on your own strength for it. Only those who have the Spirit of God, Paul is reminding him, will be able to endure. And then is Paul's imperative to Timothy. If you share in the truth of the gospel, then do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me. That is our calling as well. Don't look for the path of least resistance, but join willfully in the suffering that will come by your faithfulness. But God will give you strength and endurance and sound mind. And that's his first admonition to Timothy. His next is to defend the gospel. In verses 13 to 14, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So here you see there are actually two. Follow the teaching, but guard also that teaching. The Greek word for follow the pattern, which is maybe 
you know, our English translation, a clumsy way of saying, guard the gospel. Remember, this isn't a complete canon yet, right? So follow the pattern means to, to keep something that has been passed on to you, or the teaching that has been given. And it means to hold on to that truth that is there. It means to have it and protect it. And Paul's obviously speaking about the gospel that he's passed on to Timothy, right? Paul tells Timothy to follow or retain the standard of sound words which you heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ. In other words, Timothy, teach the gospel, but guard that gospel. You're, he's teaching amongst serpents and uh, false teachers, and he's obviously overwhelmed by it. He's feeling persecuted by it. And Paul's saying, no, stand guard. Proclaim that truth. Protect it. Don't let them chip away on those edges to introduce more than the pure, true gospel. Hold on to the gospel you heard from me. So what does he mean by guarding that deposit, though? He, uh, a good deposit is the treasure that I mentioned before. A treasure that um, is deposited is the gospel. And Paul is commanding that by God's Spirit, you can guard that truth. And in the previous letter Paul wrote to Timothy, 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15, he says this. This is Paul in his first letter saying to Timothy, I want to I join you, I want to be there. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, we deny the power sometimes, don't we? He's saying to Timothy that guarding the truth is one of your primary tasks. And the church of God is that pillar of truth that we are to protect uh, to the world. And if we fail in that duty, we are then compromising in the truth. That means we are denying its power because we are softening its power. We are tainting it by adding to it. So as believers, our role, yes, is to proclaim, but it's also to guard. And uh, we're looking earlier at gifting this morning. There are teachers who are given that spiritual gift to teach, but everyone can teach something. You can pass on information. Some are just better at it, but you're also hearers of it. Everyone's gifted with the understanding. There are rare cases, I suppose, of disabilities, but we can comprehend. And so that we, we, we need to be ones who may not be gifted in teaching, but we can still pass on that treasure. We can explain things because people can comprehend. God has given them a mind to hear, as Shantan said, a mind to understand. And Paul says here, if we retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from him and guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, the treasure which has been trusted to you. Then, he says, then you know when you do that, you will encounter opposition. In almost every social issue today, if we think of our context today, all of the top headlines of, of social issues are ones that are diametrically opposed to gospel truth. The gospel is on the wrong side of almost every cultural issue that's being promoted today. Whether it's gender, what is it? What is a woman? Whether it's sexual immorality, marriage, 
social justice, climate alarmism, those things that the world is saying we need to talk about and we need to prioritize are in opposition. We know that the gospel does not endorse same-sex marriage or gender identity or even the hysteria around climate zealous. Um, it's a climate religion, really. Eco-faith. The gospel will confront most of the current culture. And the gospel will confront immorality and gender confusion. Because the gospel is focused on the person and the work of Christ, and the world rejects that. But we know that He is the one that saves. And, and this is Paul's call and reminder to Timothy. Stay true to the gospel message. Don't avoid suffering that will come for the sake of the gospel. You've been saved. You've been called. And now proclaim that truth. And that is what Paul's saying to him, to Timothy, but by virtue to all of us who have been called. Retain the gospel, proclaim the gospel, guard the gospel, and suffer for the gospel. And that means you will not be ashamed of it. Remember that Christ has already bore your shame, bore the shame of the gospel on the cross of Calvary. You have no fear of death if you are His. You, are his. you have no fear of man. And so when you are feeling alone in the task of speaking the truth in a very hostile world, rest in that. Know that you are not alone. God by strength, through His Spirit, will strengthen you. So stand tall, and be counted, and be encouraged in your suffering. Let's pray. Father God, indeed, we thank You for these letters of encouragement that we can apply in our own lives. And Lord, the warning that comes with them of a false or fickle faith, a faith that is a fair, fair-weather faith, a faith that is not based on the truth of your word, nor have a faith that maybe has uh, transformed a believer from death to life. So Lord, if there are those here this morning who don't know that faith and that courage or have a desire to bring you glory in their lives and to be faithful, we pray that you would work in their hearts. We pray, Lord, that you would pierce their hearts, that they would, uh, they would open the eye of their heart, that you would draw themselves to you. And Lord, we thank you for this faithful body of believers. That Lord, we can encourage one another. That we can demonstrate to the world that we are yours by our love for one another. And our love for your word. So we pray that it would continue to sanctify us. Continue to embolden us. But Lord, that we would do it for your glory. That Lord, we would uh, not do it for any man-centered reason or to be um, pleasing to man in any way, but to bring you glory. We thank you for your faith, that you alone can save us. We pray this in your name. Amen.